Uh, as I noted, many of the psalms have titles that tell us about the historical context in which the psalm was written, and those historical markers can help us better interpret the psalm. So just to give you a, a well-known example of this, uh, the title to Psalm 51 tells us that David wrote it after Nathan the prophet had confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. And so obviously that historical note helps us to better interpret the psalm. We can link it up with that narrative of David's sin and we can understand now what David's doing in the aftermath of that, his repentance. Uh, according to the title here above Psalm 3, this psalm uh, was written uh, when David was on the run from his son Absalom. And see, indeed, it seems to be written the morning after he was being pursued uh, by Absalom. We've actually read part of that story in 2 Samuel 15 and 16 today. It actually stretches out several chapters. So I'm just going to have to talk about some of that, even though we didn't read it. What I want to do this morning is walk you through this psalm and the story together because they interpret one another. So Psalm 3 and those chapters out of 2 Samuel, they belong together. The story gives the context for the psalm and the psalm gives us David's interpretation of his situation. What's going on at this stage in David's life? Absalom is David's rebellious son and Absalom covets his father's throne and indeed conspires against his father to make the kingdom his own. We learn at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 15 that Absalom was a master of political scheming. There's not any politician around today uh, who would have anything on Absalom. Absalom knew how to gain the loyalty of the people by telling them what they wanted to hear. A little bit of truth mixed with a little bit of deceit, actually a lot of deceit. Uh, as, it, as it turns out. You see this in the first few verses of chapter 15. He gathers chariots and horses, which would be expected with anybody who's royal. Uh, that, those things would go with royalty. He's got 50 men in his entourage, a rather large band. And he would go stand at the gates to the city, and he would speak to the people as they were entering the town each morning. And he would especially look for those people with some kind of grievance. People perhaps with some kind of victim complex thinking they've been wronged, uh, maybe they really have, maybe they haven't, they've got some kind of sense of entitlement, they're, they're, they're seeking after uh, justice, and he would speak to these people as they entered into the city, and uh, he would find those people especially who wanted to bring a lawsuit before the king, and he would say, hey, it's too bad, isn't it, that the king doesn't have anyone who can hear your case, if only the administration were better run. You know, if only things in, in, in the capital uh, were being administered better, there'd be somebody to hear your case. If only I was judge in the land and you could bring your lawsuit to me, I could get you justice. I would take care of you. I would do right by you. He presents himself as a real man of the people who can help. He criticizes the current administration and presents himself as the better alternative. And so not surprisingly, like any crafty politician telling lies to curry the favor of the people, he builds up quite a following. People start to say, hey, yeah, maybe it would be better if Absalom was in charge. Maybe then I'd get my case heard. Maybe then I could get Justice. He becomes a real man of the people, so to speak. This is kind of a populist movement that is arising uh, from Absalom's interaction with those going into the city. Verse 6 tells us he stole the hearts 
of the men of Israel, or it could just as easily read as he duped the hearts of the people in Israel. Absalom criticizes his father's administration. He promises better things. Of course, we know really all he's interested in is gathering power for himself. Finally, in what appears to be the 40th year of David's reign, so this is most likely after Solomon has already been appointed as David's successor, Absalom decides the time has come to make his move. He's been plotting revolution, and now he acts on it. He's been gathering up a following, gaining the loyalty of the people, however misguided that might be, and now it's time to act. And so Absalom asks for permission to fulfill a vow in Hebron, which not coincidentally, is where David had been anointed as king. He wants to go down to that place where kings are made, where kings enter into office. And his father trusts him and says, go in peace. But Absalom's got a plan. He's acting on a very subversive plan. He has sent his spies through the land of Israel to get out his message. And they tell the people, when you hear the trumpet sound, cry out, Absalom reigns in Hebron. You can think of these spies as kind of like the spies that Joshua sent into the land, sort of paving the way for the conquest of the land. Only this time they're on the other side. Uh, this time they're, they're not on God's side, and they're standing against God's anointed king, David. But they're still paving the way for a kind of conquest of the land. Of course, Absalom has Ahithophel on his side, who is a very shrewd counselor. And so now, think about the situation David finds himself in. Here he is king, but he's got opposition. I, I think it's really, really interesting. David now, as an older man, a much older man, finds himself in a similar situation he was in as a much younger man. As a much younger man, when he was anointed as king, but Saul was still reigning, Saul started to hunt him down. Saul was pursuing him. Here he is, the Lord's anointed, and he's been being pursued by Saul. Once again, now as an old man, David finds himself on the run, a fugitive in his own kingdom, a fugitive in a kingdom that rightly belongs to him. As a young man, it was his best friend's father who was pursuing him. Now as an old man, it is his son who is pursuing him. Jerusalem, known as the city of David, has turned against David. Now, there are a couple interesting things to, to notice here. On the one hand, even though Ab, what Absalom is doing is very wicked, we have to notice also that he is fulfilling God's plan. He's fulfilling a prophecy God has delivered. Absalom certainly has no regard for God or for God's will, yet he is unwittingly fulfilling God's will against David. This is the culmination of God's punishment against David for his sin with Bathsheba, which was announced by Nathan back in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan had said, this is what's going to happen to you because of your sin. This is David being chastened by the Lord for his sin. Absalom's rebellion is part of God's plan to, to come against David in this way, to, uh, to punish David in this way because of his sin. David's sin, while private, had very public consequences. At the same time, we have to see that David really is a victim. 
While David was the king in waiting, again, after he had been anointed, but when Saul was still reigning, David was very, very careful to honor Saul, to not disrespect Saul in any kind of way, to honor the fact that Saul was still king. He wanted to honor Saul's reign until God had removed Saul from the picture altogether. David did not want to seize the crown and the glory prematurely, and so he waited for God to give him these things. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised to David, again through Nathan the prophet, that the kingdom would belong to him and his seed forever. It would not belong to someone like Absalom, who makes himself a rival, but rather it would belong to a chosen son, a chosen one who would come from David's line. That covenant means the kingdom cannot ultimately be taken from David. So, so David knew all along, he doesn't have to seize the kingdom when he's a young man. The kingdom's going to belong to him permanently because of this promise that's been given to him. Unlike David, what Absalom is doing here is entirely wrong. Absalom is seeking to seize the kingdom. He's got no right to it. And yet here he's trying to seize his father's kingdom. He's not following the example of what uh, his father David did when Saul was on the throne, honoring the one that the Lord has placed there, honoring that authority. Absalom has rejected his father. He's rejected the Lord's anointed. And so really he's rejected the Lord himself. You might even think of Absalom as a kind of counterfeit David, an anti-David figure. Everything David does, Absalom does the opposite. Again, David waited instead of trying to seize the kingdom for himself. That's not what Absalom's going to do. He's seeking to seize the, the kingdom, the glory, and the crown for himself. And so Absalom really here has created an alternative kingdom. An alternative kingdom with an alternative group of followers who are loyal to him. He's seizing a throne that does not belong to him. And so now David, in his own kingdom finds himself surrounded by enemies, a multitude of enemies. You can see why Psalm 3 opens as it does. Psalm 3, the opening verses, match what is happening in the story. O Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Yes, many are they who rise up against me, led by my own son Absalom. And he's got this huge following now, and they're all against me. And they're seeking to subvert my reign and take the throne from me. David's enemies have multiplied almost overnight. He's now surrounded by enemies, most of whom are traitors against his kingdom. Many of whom he once would have considered trusted friends or allies, even family members who have now turned against him. And so what does David do? David goes into exile. David leaves Jerusalem. David decides to sacrifice himself for the good of the city. He knows if he stays and fights right now, the city will suffer. The city will suffer likely a siege, and then the city will suffer great bloodshed. And as a righteous king, as a loving king, as a kind-hearted king, he does not want that. He wants to be a king who rules, yes, but who rules through service, who leads his people in a sacrificial way. Earlier, when... Uh, he sinfully plotted against Uriah, he had decided to sacrifice another for his own benefit. That was his great sin there. But now we see how David truly is repentant. Now as a repentant man, he's going to sacrifice himself for the benefit of others. He's going to lay down his life. He's going to lay down his glory. He's going to lay down his kingdom 
for the benefit of others so that they don't have to suffer. He will suffer so they don't have to. That's how David acts as king here. And so David goes into exile. And it's an exile that is recorded for us in slow motion. Very slow motion, you might say. Excruciating detail. Uh, when the climactic showdown between those loyal to David and those loyal to Absalom finally happens in chapter 18, the narrator only gives three verses to that climactic battle uh, in, in, in 2 Samuel 18. Just three verses to the battle. But David's departure from the city, David going into exile, takes an excruciating 39 verses to record. It's all in slow motion. You might think of Jesus making his way to Jerusalem and then to the cross. It's kind of this slow, you know, the story slows down. You get every little detail. That's how it is here as David goes in to exile. The narrator wants to introduce to us a number of characters who must choose which side they will be on. That's why this unfolds so slowly, why this story of exile is unrolled so slowly. Because the narrator wants us to see people choosing up sides. Who's going to choose David? Who's going to choose Absalom? Who's going to choose the Lord's anointed? Who's going to choose the pretender, the rival? So verse 18 of 2 Samuel, I know we didn't read all this. Let me just tell you what happens here. Uh, 2 Samuel 15, 18, there are various Philistines who have become loyal servants of David. They're probably his bodyguards, but they are also personally loyal to him. They've probably been converted to the worship of Yahweh. And this includes one who has just joined their band named Etai. And, and David realizes this, and he says, you know, you are free to go. Like Ruth, in the book of Ruth, he's tested. He has the opportunity to return to his own people. But just as Ruth decides to stick with Naomi... And, 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 and the people of the Lord, so it is with Etai. He decides to stick with David no matter what. And here in the story of Etai, you have this beautiful little picture. It's really both a reminder and a prophecy. It's a reminder of what God promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12, that he would bless all the families and all the nations of the earth. That includes Philistines like Etai. It's also a prophecy, a prophetic sign that the kingdom of God's Messiah, when the greater David comes, the kingdom will be open to Gentiles. Here you have Gentiles who are more loyal to David than most of Israel. These Philistines are part of the true Israel, and many Israelites are not part of the true Israel any longer. We can think of ourselves as much like Etai. We are Gentiles who have committed to follow the Lord's anointed no matter what. We've committed to follow the Lord's anointed whether we live or die. So Etai chooses up sides. Then you've got Zadok and Abiathar of the tribe of Levi. These are priests. And they actually are loyal to David. They are so loyal to David, they have brought the Ark of the Covenant out to be with David. These men are loyal to David, and they want the Lord's Ark to be with the Lord's king. And they're well-intentioned in this, no doubt. They want the Ark to stay with David, the presence of the Lord to stay with David. Now, David uh, actually doesn't want the Ark with him. Uh, he wants God's favor, not God's furniture, is how you, you could put this. He doesn't want anyone to think he's superstitious. That, that he thinks he belongs to God just because he's got the Ark of the Covenant. Because Israel's played that game before and it didn't work out so well. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, there's a story there you might know where the Israelites took the Ark with them into battle against the Philistines. And they took the Ark with them into battle because they thought it would be kind of a, a good luck charm. Kind of like having a, a lucky rabbit's foot with you. We'll take the Ark of the Covenant with us and surely that will mean God will give us the victory. 
But of course, it didn't work that way because the people were unfaithful and idolaters. It didn't matter that they had the ark with them. In fact, God allowed his own ark to be captured by the Philistines. And really what's happening is as the ark is captured and taken by the Philistines into the temple of Dagon, their God, it's kind of like God, through the ark, is going into exile on behalf of the people. It's a kind of substitutionary exile. And of course, the, 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 the uh, idol to, to Dagon, the god of the Philistines, falls over before the ark. Uh, the, the, the false god is humiliated before the true and living god. And the people of the uh, Phil, Philistia uh, region are plagued. And so they realize, you know, we better give this thing back. And so they end up sending the ark back. And it's a kind of exodus where the ark is brought back into the land of promise and it is restored. So you've got the, the gods of the Philistines humiliated, you've got the ark returned, and it all hinges on this substitutionary exile where the Lord, in a way, suffers the indignity of exile being captured so that his people can be forgiven and restored. Okay, well, there, there are similarities and differences between that story and what's happening here. Okay. David's going to go into a kind of substitutionary exile, suffering exile so that his people won't have to suffer. But David doesn't want the ark with him because he's casting himself on God's mercy. And he doesn't want anybody to think that he's presuming upon God's mercy just because he has the ark. It doesn't work that way, and David knows it. And so David has the ark sent back into the city. And actually, he sends Zadok and Abiathar back into the city as well with the understanding they will act as David's spies. Uh, a great deal of this story as it unfolds hinges on deception. Zadok and Abiathar will be part of that. Then as David is moving outside the city, we find in verse 30, he arrives at the Mount of Olives and he ascends the Mount of Olives weeping as he goes up. Weeping, no doubt, over his own sin how his own sin has brought about this situation, weeping no doubt over his son and his son's sin as well, his son's sin against him. He's weeping because of his own sin. He knows in some way he's going to exile because he's sinned, but he's also weeping because of the sins being committed against him because he knows what this means. Ultimately, Absalom will have to face judgment. And this too, really, you could say, is prophetic. Think about Jesus in Luke 19, who's going to come down from the Mount of Olives and then weep over the city of Jerusalem. Of course, there Jesus is not weeping over his own sin. He's weeping over Israel's sin. And Jesus is going to endure the curse of exile, being crucified outside the city. Again, not because of his own sin, the way David's sin played a part in his suffering, but because of our sin. Nevertheless, there is clearly a connection. This weeping on the Mount of Olives see it with David. You see it with Jesus, weeping over Jerusalem. Then there's Hushai, uh, who actually meets David at the top of the Mount of Olives. And Hushai is a loyal servant of David. He's got his robe, is torn. He's put dust on his head. These are signs of mourning over what's happening. He's clearly going to be loyal with David because he's mourning over the situation that David has to leave the city and go into exile but it's determined Hushai will go back into the city and again act as a spy for David and a kind of counter count, counselor, you could say. Uh, a counselor who will counteract the work of Ahithophel. As Ahithophel counsels Absalom, Hushai will be there to counteract that counsel. 
So we've met three groups here. You've got uh, three groups who choose to be allies. You've got Etai and the other Philistines who have converted, who are followers of David and and worshipers of Yahweh. You've got uh, the priests, Zadok and Abiathar. And then you've got Hushai. These three, they had to make a decision. Will we go with David or Absalom? They all go with David. They side with David. They choose the Lord's anointed, despite the fact that he's being sent into exile, despite the fact that the kingdom is being torn from him. At the start of chapter 16, we start to meet those on the other side. We have Ziba, who is the servant of Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth was uh, the crippled um, son of Saul. But even though Saul was a rival, David had been very kind to Mephibosheth. David had taken him in, fed him at his table, shown him great hospitality. David had shown love to Mephibosheth. Now, the fact that Mephibosheth is handicapped means he's probably not going to be able to leave the city. But Ziba, his servant, comes out and he brings all kinds of gifts, making it look like he is on David's side. But really, we find Ziba is just looking out for himself. Mephibosheth's loyalty is called into question. So David gives Mephibosheth's lands to Ziba. But we're going to find later on that Ziba was actually lying. He's just trying to cause greater confusion and division. He's trying to confuse David about who his allies really are. We're going to find later that Mephibosheth actually was loyal to David. So Ziba is really just looking out for himself here. He's not on David's side. And then there is Shimei. And we read about this this morning. This is really the low point of David's humiliation. Shimei is also from Saul's house. He is an enemy of David and he curses David. Indeed, he and his men throw stones at David. He mocks David, announcing that the kingdom is now Absalom's. And Abishai, who is with David, says, this dead dog should not be allowed to curse King David. And Abishai requests permission to go and fight him, chop his head off. But David says, no, the Lord has willed him to curse. The Lord has bidden him to curse, so let him curse. Perhaps the Lord will look upon my affliction and bless me. Perhaps the Lord will see my suffering and decide that's enough. Shimei uses David's sins against him, calling him a bloodthirsty man. Now, he accuses him of being bloodthirsty against Saul's house. That's actually not true. That's a false accusation. But of course, while all of Shimei's charges are are, are not true, there is still a, a hint of truth in this because David did shed innocent blood. He shed the blood of Uriah. He had Uriah murder. And so hearing Shimei accuse him of these things, hearing hearing Shimei curse him in this way had to be painful. Shimei is basically saying to David, David, God has abandoned you. God has abandoned you for good. God has abandoned you because you're a sinner. And God will not abide with sinners. God cannot be with you. You're not fit to be king anymore. This is quite possibly what David has in view in Psalm 3 when he says in verse 2, Many rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. That's much like Shimei's taunt. Shimei is saying, God's not going to help you. That's what David records his enemies saying in Psalm 3. And of course, no doubt, if Shimei is saying this, others are saying it too. There are many people who are saying, God's not on David's side anymore. The Ark of the Covenant is still in the city. David doesn't have that. David's being driven out of the city. Absalom is here. Clearly, God has given up on David. He has abandoned David. Clearly, David is not the the one anymore. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, we find David and his people are finally away from the city. And David and all the people who are with him are exhausted from the events of the day and from their journey. No doubt physically exhausted, but no doubt emotionally and, and spiritually exhausted as well. They are weary. David and his small band that has come outside the city with him. They've made this journey. They've endured this hardship. They've lost everything. And so what would you do at the end of a long day, at the end of a long journey? You'd probably like to get some sleep. But how can David go to sleep at a time like this? He's on the run. He's been cursed. He's had to leave his home. He's had to leave his royal dwelling place. He's under attack. His own son is leading a conspiracy against him, taking the throne from him. He has lost everything. He is weak. He is vulnerable. The city is against him. The kingdom's been torn from him. That's his situation. He's got no army to protect him, no shield of defense. It seems at this point he's got no glory. All the glory of his kingdom has been left behind, stripped away from him. He's got no shield, no glory. He's exhausted. He's weak. He's vulnerable. How could David possibly get a good night's sleep in a situation like this? David is under intense pressure. How can he relax? How can he rest? Psalm 3 answers. How can David have peace in a time like this? How can David rest in a time like this? David says he's surrounded by enemies who taunt him in verses 1 and 2. But then in verses 3 and 4 of the psalm, listen to what he says. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. See, David seems weak and vulnerable. He's exhausted and weary. He's lost the kingdom. It doesn't seem that, that, that there's anything going right for David. It seems it's all been taken from him. But actually, what does David say here? What's the reality? David does have a shield. He knows he needs protection, and he knows the Lord will protect him. He knows God is his shield. What better shield could there be than that? If God promises to be a force field for you, to protect you, to shield you, nothing can penetrate that shield. Nothing can get through. Nothing can harm you. No weapon formed against you can prosper if the Lord is your shield. This psalm here echoes God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, where God says to Abraham, who faced a very difficult situation, military battles, enemies, opponents, people who are out to get him, God says to Abraham, I am your shield and your great reward. David knows God is his shield. God surrounds him on every side. God can keep him safe. Further, it seems David has no glory. He's lost the glory of the kingdom. The glory of the kingdom has been stripped away. His, his head has been cast down in sorrow and humiliation and defeat. But what does he say in this psalm? The Lord will be his glory. The Lord will be the one who lifts his head, who exalts him and gives him the victory. The Lord has heard David's cries and the Lord will answer him. My guess is that this psalm was penned in the morning after all of this, the morning after these events happened, uh, when David left the city. Because of what David says in verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept and I awoke for the Lord sustained me. 
He's writing this psalm after a good night's sleep, even though he's been surrounded by enemies and has lost any, you know, any kind of shield or glory that he might have had as king. He's lost all those things, but after a good night's sleep, he pens this psalm, giving God thanks that he was able to lay down and sleep and then wake up the next morning because the Lord had sustained him through the night. David entrusted himself to the Lord. So even in the most agonizing and difficult of circumstances, he was able to sleep like a baby. Or we might say he was able to sleep like a king. The kingdom's been taken from him, and yet he can still sleep like a king because he trusts the Lord. He's at peace even though he's at war. He's got war all around him, but he's still at peace because he's trusting the Lord. It seems that everything is breaking loose all around him. And yet David can go to sleep knowing he's loved. Psalm 127 says, the Lord grants sleep to those he loves. David went to bed weary and exhausted, but he woke up refreshed because the Lord had sustained him. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a night when you just couldn't sleep? You ever had a night where you just tossed and turned? And I don't mean like, say, when you have a newborn baby and that's keeping you up, or, or even if you have a sickness and, and that's what's keeping you up. I just mean where there is so much stress and anxiety, you've lost so much, things have gone so wrong, you just can't go to sleep. You've got all these things on your mind, all these things you're worried about, and you just can't let those things go, and so they keep you up at night. And so you toss and turn through the whole night. If that has ever happened to you, and I would guess it's happened to most all of us, if that's ever happened to you, David has your answer. David has your cure for this kind of insomnia. David is an example for you to follow. When David was on the run, and all the, everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong, when he was on the run, at the end of a long, hard day, the worst day you could ever imagine, what does he do? You know, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is just go to sleep. Because by going to sleep, you are confessing, Lord, I'm trusting you. David could sleep because he slept in faith. He knew God is my night watchman. God is my night watchman. He's going to guard me. He's going to protect me. Incidentally, I would guess that Psalm 4 was written about this same time. Uh, Psalm 4 has a title, but it doesn't tell us when it was written. But I would guess Psalm 4 probably comes from the, the same circumstances in David's life, probably about the same time. And it ends with these words. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Despite all that's going wrong, wrong around me, despite everything breaking loose around me, I can go to sleep in safety because I know you are with me. You make me to dwell in safety. Think about all the things that could have plagued David that night. He probably didn't have a bed, really, to sleep on. You know, what's he sleeping on at this point? Maybe hard ground. But think of all the things that could have plagued him. He could have had regret about his past, even guilt and shame, because he knows his sin has contributed to the, the, the dilemma that he's in. He could have had worry and anxiety about the future, wondering what Absalom and his men will do next as it seems like they're pulling off this coup, overthrowing his kingdom. He could have had fear and anger about the present, 
Because he's the king and kings shouldn't be treated this way. He's the Lord's anointed and the kingdom has been stolen from him. Friends and even his own son have turned on him and betrayed him. They have become traitors against him. They dealt treacherously with him. He could have had all of these feelings about the past, the future, and the present. Nevertheless, he was able to get a good night's sleep. See, the secret to a good night's sleep, even while enemies are circling around, even when sons are rebelling, even when the kingdom is collapsing, even when it seems all is lost, the secret to a good night's sleep is knowing that the Lord is your shield and your glory. And nothing can take away that shield. If the Lord is your shield, nothing can steal him away. If the Lord is your glory, nothing can take that glory away. David left Jerusalem with nothing, but in reality, because he had God with him, he had everything. Everything he could possibly need. Even if everything else is taken from you, if you have God, that's enough. God is Enough. Whatever it is you're worried about losing or whatever it is you have lost, it is really no loss at all compared to the surpassing riches and treasures that you have in God himself, which you cannot lose. This God takes away our fears. He takes away our guilt and our shame. He takes away our worries. When you have God as your shield and your glory, you can get through anything. When you hang your head in shame or in defeat, he will lift your head. He will exalt you. When you have this confidence, you can get through anything. <laughs> you can sleep through anything. You can find rest. You can find rest fit for a king. Again, you need to understand, the point here is not that David was sinless or even so righteous that he was guaranteed these good things would happen. It's not that he's so righteous or so great or so virtuous. Actually, David at this point has really got nothing to brag about. He's made all kinds of mistakes and sins and errors. Again, the reality is a lot of this mess really was due to his own sin. Nevertheless, he can entrust himself to God. The point is, God does all these things for sinners. God is a shield for sinners who cry out to him. He is the glory of sinners who cry out to him. He will lift the head of sinners who cry out to him. David knows God is in control. He knows God will work it all out. David knew. This is what I think. These are the guiding stars of David's life at this point. This is what is guiding David, directing David. He knows there are two words God has spoken to him which must be fulfilled. There's the word of judgment in 2 Samuel 12 where Nathan announces punishment because of his sin. We've seen how that ties in with the story. But there's also that word of covenant, that word of promise in 2 Samuel 7 where Nathan tells David the kingdom will belong to him and his house and to his seed forever. So the kingdom cannot be stolen from him. The Messiah is going to come from his line. The Messiah will be his seed. And that Messiah will rule forever. And so the kingdom cannot go to a rival. It cannot fall into the hands of a rival like Absalom. And so because David knows God's word, he can rest. He can rest knowing God has spoken, God has promised, and God is faithful. David can rest at night because he rests in the promises of God. If you have a hard time falling asleep, don't count sheep. Count promises. 
Count the promises God has made to you. That's what David is doing. He's coming back to those promises again and again and again. The last two verses of the psalm really express David's confidence in what is to come. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. It's interesting, David puts this in past tense, even though it's a prayer, it's really a request. But he puts it in past tense as though God has already done these things because he's so confident God will do these things. He knows God will answer this prayer. You've struck all my enemies on the cheek. He says, you have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation, victory, belong to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. The language of David here echoes the language of Moses in Numbers 10, where Moses says, Arise, O Lord, scatter your enemies. May those who hate you flee from you. That's what David is praying for. If God smashes in the teeth of your enemies, you have nothing to fear. If God smashes in Shimei's teeth, that'll shut Shimei up. That'll stop the accusations from coming. If God strikes your enemies on the cheek, if God scatters your enemies, that's what God has promised to do. That's why David can sleep at night. I think it's really interesting. I do think there's a flow or order to the Psalms. I don't think we can always discern exactly why the Psalms are organized the way they are. But I think you can see that here. Psalm 1 and 2 really are a pair. In fact, really, you could even view them as one psalm. Psalm 1 describes the obedient man, the law-abiding man, the man who meditates on God's law day and night and who puts it into practice and who therefore has God's blessing. He is the blessed man because he is the obedient man. And Psalm 2 shows us this obedient man becomes the dominion man. This obedient man becomes king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to inherit the nations and rule over the kings of the earth. He'll have dominion over the whole earth. But then we come to Psalm 3. And the blessing and the triumph of the first two psalms, we find, are followed by this psalm of lament. Now the Lord's anointed is under attack. His enemies are closing in on him. They have surrounded him. And they are taunting him and mocking him. Will the Lord save him? Will the Lord give him the victory? And the end of this psalm answers yes. He will triumph. He will overthrow his enemies. The Lord will deliver him and give him the victory. The Lord will hear from his holy hill in verse 4. That echoes Psalm 2 where the Lord enthrones his Messiah as king on his holy hill. The Lord hears from his holy hill and will act to rescue and deliver. Now it should be obvious what all of this is about. These things were not just written so that we would have historical trivia about the life of David. These things are written for our instruction as God's new covenant people to show us the gospel. It should be obvious what all of this is about, or really I should say who all of this is about. It's not all written down for David's sake. It's written down to point us to Jesus. It's really all about him. Everything that happened to David, his suffering, his exile, his enemies, his mocking, and yes, his final vindication and glorification as well, all of it points ahead to Jesus, to what Jesus would do. It's all fulfilled in him. Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1. Jesus is the dominion man of Psalm 2. And yes, Jesus is the suffering man of Psalm 3. David's story points to and paves the way for the Jesus story. David's enemies, David's exile, David's assurance, David's victory. It all points to one greater than David, who, yes, would also be surrounded by enemies, 
who would be exiled outside the city, who would be cursed and mocked, especially as he hung on the cross. They would cry out and say, where is his God? Why isn't his God saving him? He saved others. Can he not save himself? They would mock him and treat him as a sinner. David was betrayed by his son Absalom. Jesus was betrayed by his friend Judas. David was taunted by Shimei. Jesus has had his Shimei's too. Those who taunted him and mocked him as he was being crucified. David had a rival who tried to take away his kingdom. Jesus had a rival in Satan who tried to take his kingdom away as well. There are even parallels to David's sleep at night in the midst of trial. David slept the night through trial. In Mark chapter 4, as we read this morning, Jesus was on a boat with his disciples. This great trial of a storm comes up, and yet Jesus sleeps right through the storm. And then he awakens to calm the storm. But he was sleeping through the storm. And of course, that reminds us too of Acts chapter 12, where Peter sleeps through the storm. Peter's in prison. Uh, Peter's probably awaiting execution, or at least a, a really painful beating. He's sleeping soundly in prison. And then an angel of the Lord appears to him and sets him free. But Peter too could sleep through the storm because like David, he knew God is my shield. God is my glory. God will lift up my head. God will strike my enemies. Now let me ask you these things. Are these things true for you? Can you rest in restless times? You can rest in a restless time if you will rest in God's promises. You know, we didn't read this far ahead, but let me just tell you real quickly how this story ends for David, how God restores David and, and restores the kingdom to David, how God casts down Absalom and, and, and destroys Absalom. And of course, he does so by frustrating Ahithophel's counsel. Those who sided with Absalom are also destroyed. In 2 Samuel 16, verse 16, Absalom enters the city and he hears Hushai say, long live the king. But of course, it's a trick. Hushai is actually on David's side and the king he's wishing blessing to is the Lord's anointed. It's actually David. Ahithophel counsels Absalom to confirm his possession of the kingdom. Hushai uses flattery to misdirect Absalom. In 2 Samuel 17, Hushai acts in a risky but shrewd way to help David. Again, it looks like Absalom has it all. He has the capital city. He has the royal advisors. He has the army, the people. What does David have? Nothing but God. He's got his friends. He's got his allies. But by comparison, he seems to have nothing. But God is with David. And God has promised to David to preserve a remnant who will be loyal to him. And so when Absalom and David, when their people meet on the field of battle, the Lord turns the tide in David's direction. It's clear God intervenes to make the battle go his way. In chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, verses 6 to 8, we find the people go out to fight in the woods of Ephraim. And the servants of David overthrew Absalom's men, slaughtering 20,000. David's army routs Absalom's army. And it's interesting, chapter 18, verse 8 says the battle was scattered all over the face of the whole countryside. It says the woods devoured more people that day than the sword. God used even the trees, he used even the woods to fight on David's side to defeat Absalom. It's like the trees become these ants who go to war against Absalom. That's kind of the picture you get. 
Now, it's interesting, too, out of compassion for his son, David tells the men to be gentle with Absalom. But, of course, in the end, it doesn't matter. After losing on the field of battle, Absalom flees the battlefield on a donkey. The donkey goes under some trees with some low-hanging branches, and his head gets caught in one of them while the donkey keeps on going. And so when David's men find him, they spear him to death. And so Absalom is defeated. David is vindicated. The kingdom is restored. David's exile comes to an end because its enemies have been overthrown. The Lord has been a shield and a glory to David. What does that mean for us? What does it all mean for us? We need to always remember those who defy the Lord's anointed, which today is not David, but the Lord Jesus. Those who defy the Lord's anointed can never win. Oh, it may look like they're winning and they may have great strength and power. It may look like they have all the shields and all the glory. It may look like they have the numbers and the power. It may seem that their conspiracies and their counsels against King Jesus are going to succeed. But we need to know, as this story shows us, those conspiracies and those counsels against King Jesus will be brought to nothing. And that's why you can always rest easy. That's why you can sleep easy. This psalm and this story show us what it means to live with confidence in God's promises. When you rest in God's word, you can really rest. You can overcome weakness and shame. Because God is your God. God is your shield and your glory and the lifter of your head. You can know he will give you the victory. People said God would not rescue David, but God did. People said God would not rescue Jesus on the cross, but he did on the third day. People today say God won't rescue his people. God won't vindicate his church. The followers of Jesus are going to be the great losers. They say God's not going to rescue us, but you can be certain God will. God will rescue us. God is our shield. God is our glory. God will lift up our heads. He will vindicate us. He will exalt us. He will give us the victory as we stay faithful to him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.